coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn. This is 112BK. On the show today, another revelatory book about the man we call our president, reimagining digital media, and a message to love with the Hendrix Project. Hi, and welcome to the show. I'm Ashley Ford, and I'm back. Thanks, Brian Vines, for filling in yesterday while I was under the weather. I heard it was a great show, and I'm so sorry I missed out. But I'm going to jump right in, because we've got a packed show today. You've heard about Fire and Fury, but another illuminating and troubling book about our 45th president is just out, an inside story about that venerable institution, Trump U. And we'll talk with my friend Aaron Edwards about the state of digital media. And then a story about a band of gypsies, the Jimi Hendrix Band of Gypsies. But first, a few things. We've got a small collection of correction stories. First, the city recently announced it will take an initial step toward closing the infamous Rikers detention complex this summer when it closes one of its jails. That will bring the number of operational facilities down from nine to eight. The mayor's office says this is possible because the population at the much maligned center is decreasing, and that's good news. But full closure can't come too soon for many, including at least 45 women who are suing the Department of Corrections for the sexual abuse they say they've received while trying to visit loved ones at the complex. They say that guards have subjected them to illegal strip searches out of view of the surveillance cameras prior to allowing them to enter. It's like that place is diseased with indignities. Ready for one more? Corrections officials in New York and elsewhere are limiting the books prisoners can receive while serving their sentences. And no, I'm not just talking about an idiot's guide to busting out or the anarchist cookbook. New Jersey had banned Michelle Alexander's seminal work about mass incarceration, the new Jim Crow, at least until the state was criticized by the ACLU. And New York has now announced that this fall, it will only allow packages to be delivered from a select list of vendors, who combined have about 100 book titles total, and about two dozen of those are coloring books. What the hell? More on this one in an upcoming segment. In other news, in case you haven't heard, Brooklyn Assemblywoman Pamela Harris was indicted on charges of fraud and witness tampering in relation to an alleged scheme to misappropriate relief funds after Hurricane Sandy. Colleagues were reportedly shocked by allegations that she took money earmarked for displaced victims and spent it on her mortgage, vacations, and lingerie. And finally, a brief ode to the chain store, because a study found Brooklyn is a hospitable environment for your Dunkin' Donuts, your TGI Fridays, etc. The number of chains in the borough increased by more than 3% from 2016 to 2017, compared to less than 1% increase in Manhattan. I'm at the Pizza Hut. I'm at the Taco Bell. I'm at the combination Pizza Hut and Taco Bell. Well, actually, I'm in Brooklyn. But stay tuned for our first conversation. Yes, there's Fire and Fury, but another eye-opening book about 45's dealings has just been released. It's about Trump University, written by a professor who once worked at the institution, which essentially ceased operations in 2010. Trump U was sued for defrauding its students, who paid thousands for the promise of being just as successful as the Donald. To them, he said, Trump U. 
but he ended up settling for $25 million. We have with us today Stephen Gilpin, the Brooklyn-based author of Trump U, the inside story of Trump University. Welcome to 112BK. Thank you, thank you so much. Glad to be here. So happy to have you here to talk Thanks. about this. I think um, a lot of people are gonna be interested. Uh, the first thing that I wanted to ask you about was just why did you write the book? Like at what point did you go, this is something that I have to do? It was when probably when my Aunt Debbie had called me and said mm. that you are a real estate expert and they know that. Yep. And they're on CNN News and everyone's saying, how much are they were crooks and how much, you know, the people were, you know, the speakers, they're all crooks. No one knew anything about real estate. Right. And I'm like, that's not true. Right. I was the real estate guy. I have proof, evidence that I right. back. I do real estate for a living. Right. You know? And the people who were saying that, were they students or were they just the people who were? They were actually newscasters. Newscasters. It was anchors. Donald Trump himself and his mm. attorneys actually said, oh, I didn't know that they didn't know anything about real estate. I didn't mm. qualify them. But meanwhile, right. you have the video up on YouTube saying he personally handpicked everyone. Yeah, I mean, how does it feel to be personally handpicked by Donald Trump to work <laughs> we for? Personally handpicked. Yeah, <laughs> you're like that's not what happened. That's not what happened. He made that up. But okay. I did have the real estate experience, right? And all. I think some of them were actually accused of being. They actually flipped hamburgers. Mm. There's nothing wrong with that. Right. But they had no real estate experience. Right. And I was infuriated. Was there was one night in Shiny Army, which is me, I think. Right. And it actually was. I have real estate experience. I, I've right. been doing it for twenty some years. Right. I've licensed and credentialed, and mm -hmm. so that was one of the things that pushed me to write this story. Right, was that you wanted the truth. I want the truth out, out there. there. And were you worried? I mean, like, I, I, at that point, like, I wouldn't just be worried about, like, my reputation. It's like, oh, this guy's running for president. Oh, my God, he's winning. <laughs> you know, like, I'm really worried That was a big about, shocker. Yeah, I would think it would be a big shocker. <laughs> when he became our 45th, it was oh, a big I'm shocker. <laughs> absolutely sure. I mean, I was shocked as well. I think I took off two weeks. <laughs> right, but as someone who, you know, had worked for this university that's under this man's name, you know, I'm sure yeah. that there were people who expected you to be supportive. The, oh, I, and I was supportive. I right. actually was an independent, and I switched when he was running mm -hmm. to a Republican. Wow. And all, but I couldn't get there to vote. I right. didn't. I couldn't just. I couldn't do it. I just right. could not do it. I didn't want to, um, because of he was being the twenty or forty fifth. Right. And all. So it was actually scary. So what's the truth you wanted to reveal with this book? Well, it was after the subpoenas and everything I went through mm -hmm. and testifying and giving my uh, under oath, and. I literally thought I was gonna be a part of the fall guy of this. Mm. And I really wanted my name to be cleared first off. Right. Because everything you Google on Google and stuff like that, you pull up the case, my name's broadcasted all over it. Right. There was 28 of us. Right. <laughs> Only one in-house person, but right. there was 28 other you know, salespeople and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and that was one of the things, it's just, I have to get the book out there. Right. And I couldn't do anything until the settlement was reached. Right. So I had to wait from 2010 to 2013. Wow. And then after being drugged through the mud, I felt like. Um, and it's my turn to yeah, say what it's really, my turn. It's my, I, to tell my I, side know, of the story. I wanted it to be told and I said, I'm gonna write it. Yeah, right. Absolutely. And that's really what it is, it's my inside story. So what does it feel like when somebody shows up at your house from like a government agent and says, we need to talk to you about your involvement with Trump University? Trump University. I'll never forget it. <laughs> My house in Brooklyn, mm -hmm. I just left the office and I was driving, I actually had a driver at the time. Mm -hmm. I, was dri I was driving home, uh, parked my car in the garage and walked up and I saw two uh, police officers outside my building. Oh. And I didn't think anything of it. You know, we live in Brooklyn, I didn't really think anything of it. 
But right. then I went to the front door of the building and I noticed this huge letter, a subpoena. And then I went to the front door of my house. I'll never forget that. My neighbor, elderly neighbor, right. comes coming out screaming, saying, Stephen, the police are here. The police are looking for you. And I'm like, what? Like, what, what, what did I do? Right. <laughs> it was scary. So then I'm looking at it. And I went in my, uh, in my house, and I'm reading it. Mm -hmm. I, I pour myself a whiskey. I actually yeah. write about that in the book. <laughs> yeah. I needed one at that time. And then it was a subpoena. No one gave me any heads up. The organization could have called me. They could wow. have, someone could have told me wow. about it. And then it was like one subpoena, and then two subpoenas, and then three subpoenas. And it was like, mm -hmm. you got to be kidding me. Right. And then I knew I was involved. Mm -hmm. And once I got involved, and I, everyone else, I glued my eye, I kept my mouth shut, mm -hmm. I glued my eye to the news. Right. And that's really what I started watching. And then I realized, you gotta be kidding me. The narrative that We're was all being getting set blamed. Up. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And, and I, was the, I was the real estate guy. Right. And I'm just, I was the in house. I was, there was only one in house representative. And it was you. And it was me. So, what did they want to know from you? Like, when they showed up, did they, I mean, did they say that this is what we want to know when you eventually went through the process of having to talk to these people? I mean, was it just like they were like, what was your work like? The preparation, what did you know? The preparation for mm -hmm. the subpoena was unbelievable. Every, I've, I've started my new job mm -hmm. after Trump was over, right. um, worked for one of his uh, golfing partners mm -hmm. uh, and New York Real Estate Institute, and um, went there to work and at nighttime and we'd see Real Estate Education Center. At nighttime, I would leave the office after 8.30 at night, and I'd mm -hmm. have to go to the attorney's office, and they would prep you um, for the questioning. Wow. And I think we did this for a couple of weeks, every night. Uh, prepping you, mm -hmm. you know, no breaks, hitting you with question after question. And it's like, and then it was like, at, there was a point where I actually didn't even know what reality was. Mm -hmm. And that's scary. When someone can change your mind and your thought process oh, of yeah. what you know and heard is real, mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden you're out there and you're like, wow, did that really happen? Mm -hmm. Did I really have that conversation? Right. You know, mm -hmm. and then you have to have the evidence of it. And then you're told, you know, you have to say you don't recall because it wasn't your say. You heard it through somebody else, et cetera. Right. And that was one of the things that I really questioned reality. Mm -hmm. And then it was finally over with, and I was like, wait a minute. No, this did happen. Right. You know, and I was like, I have to push. I have to push the book. I have to write it. What are some of the things that you feel like you wanted to say happened? Like what, com like, what was it that compelled you? You were like, this moment, this conversation, this interaction, it has to be in this book because if it's not, <coughs> nobody's going to believe me. I can't right. clear my name without it. Right. I, well, that was one of the things is to clear my name yeah. from the whole thing. Um, is to be compared to the high-pressured salespeople mm. that I can actually say now looking back, mm -hmm. when you listen to, when you go to the seminar business, Right. And it's all seminar business. All these real estate gurus, they do mm -hmm. a seminar business. Right. It is a roadshow. It is an upsell. Mm -hmm. They're selling you into a high-pressured, it's high-pressured sales. Right. They'll do anything at that point in time mm -hmm. to get you to sign the bottom line. Right. It's, that's what it is. Right. And people fall for it. And I'm amazed today that people still fall for it because there's still gurus out there teaching right. the same thing. Mm -hmm. Just Trump had me one of the first ones right. um, doing it. But what, that was one of the things is to be compared to these high-pressured salespeople who did not have real estate experience. Right. And it was blatant when you went to the events and the shows. Right. It was really blatant. So are they talking about sales in terms of tuition, in terms of recruitment upselling, of students? Upselling, and upselling. students. Yeah. So they would pay, you would go to a free seminar, you would get the golden ticket right. in the mail. <laughs> yeah. And we see this today, even mm -hmm. today with the gurus, 
You right. get the golden ticket. I think it actually has a picture of it in the book. Yeah. Um, of the, the golden ticket. Mm -hmm. And it says, you know, from the Donald Trump. And it's a golden ticket to a attend our free event to learn the mastery of real estate. Right. Learn it the Donald Trump way mm -hmm. and all. And that was one of the things about it was you get to that free event mm -hmm. and you're, you think you're going to teach or they're going to teach you the real estate way, Donald Trump's way. They, right. You think you're going to walk away and come out of there being a multimillionaire and right. investing in real estate. Right. That's not going to happen. That's the reality of it. Mm -hmm. But what the whole purpose of that free event is to upsell you into a larger package. Right. And those packages range from anywhere from $9,000 all the way up to $36,000. Wow. And they were sales driven. So you yeah. had like the first day, they'll give you a little bit, a teaser of information about right. real estate. What do you get you know, for that? I mean, like, is $1495. it? $1495. They sell you into that next class, that next three day workshop. But it was right. $1,495. And what is that? I mean, but if I sign up for it, it's like, do it, I get the class. You get the class. You get the class, but on the sales side of it, mm -hmm. it depends on what package you signed up for. If you signed right. up for the coaching and the mentoring, I was a coach and mentor. Right. I actually did your sessions. We had six sessions, uh, 12 sessions, or right. if you were unhappy and you had problems mm -hmm. you know, and stuff that you couldn't do it on your own, I actually answered the hotline mm -hmm. where you called in with your questions and stuff. Right. But yeah, it was one of those, you know, so, you know so, do you have coach and mentor. This is the question that people are going to Sorry. ask, absolutely. Like when they find out, you know, when they read the book, when it's a good they, book. and it's good, but like. It, it, I cry, I, it, I still cry when I read it. <laughs> when they read it, when they get a better look at your experience, when they, you know, have, you know, what is hopefully a fuller, more holistic story about what happened at Trump University, one of the things that people are gonna wanna know, one of the things that I would wanna know is, do you feel any personal responsibility, any regret about what ultimately went down? Or do you feel I, like you were in the dark as well? Uh, no, I definitely was in the dark. Yeah. Um, I don't feel regret mm -hmm. about it because of my commitment. And a lot of people don't know this. I still help out Trump University students. They can still call me. Mm -hmm. They can still send me emails. I actually help out in real estate. Mm -hmm. So I, my commitment to the student and I wanted to make sure they had their education. Right. They, they paid for an education, I'll be damned high hell water. They're gonna get that education. Right. And a lot of my students, you know, they become successful. Right. It does work for some, mm -hmm. but it's, I'm telling you, real estate is hard work. Yeah. I'm, living, I'm living proof of it. Right, no, absolutely. <laughs> but no, I still work with them. So I don't, I don't have that regret mm -hmm. because everybody knows that's what, that my passion is real estate. Mm -hmm. And I'll help out anybody in real estate as long as it helps them to get ahead. Are you worried about any backlash to this book? Oh yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. A absolutely. Look look what's going on right now with the Steve Bannon book. I know. Oh yeah. Look at the backlash that's going on there. You right. Know. Mine's based on facts though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Actual right. actions and things that happened. Um, I am worried about backlash. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm worried about what 45 is going to do. Wow. I'm I mean, really worried about that side of it. But we have a plan. I mean, there could be some tweets, you know. Oh, there's going to be at the end of the day. You know. So well, I look at that side of it. You know, there's some tweets. Though. Right. People are going to want to read the book. Absolutely. Absolutely. I want them to. So when can they get it? So it, it's right now through Or Books, um, on the back of the book. It's Or Books. You can right. actually go to www.orbooks.com. Mm -hmm. You can actually go there and purchase it, and you'll have it within 48 hours Excellent. through the publishing site. Mm -hmm. um, February 20th, it goes out through Amazon for all the Amazon Prime users and Barnes and & Noble right. and Walmart. Um, it actually goes out to those uh, Amazon Prime and, and stuff. You can actually Excellent. get it uh, February 20th. Excellent. I know. Well, thank so, you yeah. so much for this, Stephen. I really no appreciate problem. you being here no and problem. talking to us about this. A lot of people are going to be interested. So. I hope so. It is the inside story, and it's the truth. We'll see what happens. All, All right. right. Thank you. Thank you.
The digital media space is a crowded one, and only the strong or savvy survive. So what makes for a winning model in today's online media marketplace? We've recently seen the demise of local efforts, DNA Info and Gothamist, and Brooklyner.com is on the ropes. Other sites vying for national audiences are always seemingly reinventing themselves. More video, less video, mass layoffs, aggregation, etc. But a new site thinks it might be on to something. It's called The Outline. And I'm here with its special projects editor and a friend, Aaron Edwards, to talk about the site and state of digital journalism. Aaron, thanks for coming on 112VK. Thank you for having me. This is like such an honor to have you on. Are you kidding me? It's an honor to be here. This is so cool. <laughs> oh, love it. Well, first of all, one of the things that people are inevitably going to wonder is what's a project at a special projects editor? Right. So uh, a special projects editor varies depending on the publication. Right. But for my job specifically at the outline, it means how do we create stories that are at the complete intersection of development, editorial, and design, mm -hmm. making sure that all three of those parts work seamlessly together when we make cool stuff. And that's why the site's so fun, right? Like that's why when you go there and you read an article, it's never just reading an article, it's a bit of an experience every single time. Right, and when we built the site, that was really baked into the DNA what we wanted mm -hmm. to make, which was a site that at its very core was just something that you had not experienced before right. from a new site. A lot of the things that we take cues from are places like Instagram Stories mm -hmm. and Snapchat and other platforms that are a lot more experimentive than news sites have been historically. Right. So if you go to the site, you just immediately know you're in for something a little bit different. Right. And one of the things that I really like about the outline personally is the fact that it's not really the place that you go for breaking news. Right. It's not the place that you go for a straight news story. It's a place where you go for opinions and for good research and things like that. But when you take away that element of breaking news and like that sort of like scramble for the civic engagement that's really hot right now, I mean, then what do you put in that place on a site like this? We are really banking on the concept that people love good stories, just mm -hmm. point blank. Right. And so a lot of what we give to our readers, the appetite, I think, for an outline reader, mm -hmm. is someone who already has read the New York Times or the Associated Press or CBS or The New Yorker, who already has some of the nuts and bolts of what's happening in the world. Right. And they're looking for a place that wants to bring them analysis and context that is not patronizing, mm -hmm. that's coming from a place that's not speaking down to them or you know, this this idea that the news is uh, this, you know, God from on high that's giving you information that you don't have as a reader, right. but in more of a conversation that actually reaches readers places that actually impacts them and yeah. that they feel like they feel something when they, they come to the site. Absolutely. Yeah. And how do you decide ultimately what's good writing and what's like the best piece to write about a subject? Is it that you guys think, you know, we need to do something on this thing? Who has an idea about this thing? Or is it that the writers come to you and they say, I have an idea, does this work for the outline? What does this look like? Or some combination of both. It's definitely a mix of those yeah. things. I think that at the core of every journalism outlet, every place mm -hmm. that's trying to do storytelling, you need to have great editors that understand the landscape of the conversation and what mm -hmm. to add to it. So our editors are always talking about how to experiment uh, with things from uh, curation and aggregation in a less traditional sense and more of a analytical sense, right. but also really deeply reported essays and features that you know mm -hmm. add on to the news in a way they're not getting other places. Right. So I think our conversations about news are always about what do we want to do and what do we yeah. want to see in the world and not necessarily chasing this idea of 
you know, getting clicks or just, you know, going for the, the common denominator for a story? Right. Like, what's, what's the next step beyond that? So you write something like, you know, Trump is the dumbest president. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like something like that. Right. But then how do you tackle, you know, all of the things that actually like Trump is doing? Is it that like you expect other places to sort of tackle that and that the people who come to you come to you for like this thing about why, like how Trump is the dumbest president? Yeah. Or do you just sort of cover these things as they come and as they just feel right for the organization? Trump is tricky. Yeah. Because every day we're talking about him in some yes. capacity. And that does not exclude us in our Slack channels and mm -hmm. in our conversations in the newsroom. Uh, but I think when we, when we talk about uh, the way that the outline approaches the world and how we cover the world, we're looking mm -hmm. at it through three lenses. Um, we call them power, culture, and the future. And Trump right. kind of sits in that realm of power. But right. what we have noticed is that a lot of people have this eye of Sauron that's just fixated <laughs> on him and him alone. Right. And though the Trump story is important, what he's doing in the country is important, there's so much happening on the margins mm -hmm. of that power and how it trickles through different sectors, different industries. So mm -hmm. the stories we're most interested in that are not Trump is the dumbest president, right. are things that examine what happens when those things shift. So we've done stories oh. about, um, you know, when people were talking about the uh, refugee ban or the, the travel mm -hmm. ban, we were looking at what are places in America that are actually accepting refugees mm -hmm. and looking at them as people and humans and not mm -hmm. just this blanket statement about them not right. being welcome in the country. Or just political fodder. Exactly. Yeah. So, so we're always looking at, like, what's the story on the margin? What's the thing that people aren't talking about as much? Mm -hmm. And how can we sort of own that space to be a place that you go to to get that side right. of the story. And when you're doing something that's experimental or something that you really are trying to tell those stories on the margins and those stories that people are missing, one of the things that comes along with that inevitably is risk. So what does it look like when you miss the mark, when the outline misses the mark? Like, what does a conversation look like of like, this is, you know, something that didn't work out for us or didn't work for us? This is how we want to improve upon it? Or is it just like, okay, scrap that, we're never doing that again? I think, uh, for me at least, uh, the way that I approach it is that nothing is off limits, really, when it comes to experimentation, except mm -hmm. stupid things. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, you don't want to do things that kind of break the tenets of journalism that, that right. make it strong. Um, but I think that experiments in terms of storytelling can go in any direction. So mm -hmm. when we think that something is not succeeded, we're not just asking, this didn't do well page views wise, so why mm -hmm. didn't, how can we improve that later? We're looking at, you know, what are the successes in this experiment? So right. a story that might have, you know, reached a few people, but they were so passionate about it, mm -hmm. there's a lesson in there for us. And so even if something is not clicking in a way that is traditionally a measure for digital media organizations, which normally is page views or reach or mm -hmm. Facebook clicks or whatever the case might be, we're looking for the story within that of how we can learn right. about our audience and how they're reacting to things. So I think we've been pretty good about that so far. Well, Aaron, thank you so much for coming on and talking about this. Of the course. outline is something that I think a lot of people should check out. They should, yeah, hopefully. definitely. And we really appreciate having you. Yeah, thank you so much. It's theoutline.com. Check us out. Theoutline.com. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Thanks, Ashley. Thank you. It was the end of the 60s and almost the end of his life. But on New Year's Eve in 1969, in one of his most legendary concerts, Jimi Hendrix and his band of gypsies wowed a New York audience at the Fillmore East. The set list included Easy Rider, Foxy Lady, Voodoo Child, Purple Haze, and Message to Love. It was an inspiration then and now. 
as one artist reimagines that night in the Hendrix Project, beginning this week here at Brick House. It was conceived and directed by Roger Ginver Smith, and we welcome him to 112BK. Thank you so much for being here, Roger. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for providing the warmth on this chilly day. <laughs> <laughs> can you tell me a little bit about the Hendrix Project and what you've built here? I can tell you a lot about tell it. Tell me so much. <laughs> <laughs> Jimi Hendrix played a legendary concert, New Year's Eve, 6970, at the old uh, Fillmore East Auditorium, which was in uh, the East Village. Mm -hmm. And he played with two dynamic uh, musicians mm -hmm. on drums, Buddy Miles, on bass, Billy Cox. Now, Billy Cox was an old army buddy of uh, Jimmy. Uh, they were both uh, veterans. In fact, uh, Jimi Hendrix was a paratrooper, uh, if you can believe that. And, of course, one of the most memorable songs that they composed and improvised, played that night, mm -hmm. was called Machine Gun, in which um, they approximate the sound of machine guns. Wow. And Jimmy introduces this song and he dedicates it to all of the soldiers who were fighting in Detroit and Chicago and New York and oh yeah in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. So it's about international conflict but it's also about domestic, domestic conflict. conflict. It's about the fact that you know one of the things that is really interesting about that time um, especially for soldiers is the fact that it's and especially for black soldiers or soldiers of color is that you did go fight for this country overseas and then you had to come back here and fight in your own neighborhood for your rights and for everything uh, that you felt should be due to you and that people told you should be due to you were it not for the color of your skin. Um, so Jimmy became sort of this controversial figure a little bit in music because of his lyrics and because of being like such an outspoken African-American man at the time, even though he spoke through the music, right? He played probably the most memorable of all Star Spangled Banners mm -hmm. the summer before at Woodstock, mm -hmm. a concert in upstate New York. And he turned that into... I think, a beautiful symphony of sounds. Right. And he knew all of the lyrics, and like uh, Agent Orange, um, mm -hmm. who doesn't seem to know those lyrics, right. and who mm. seems to be upset that uh, people should kneel, have the audacity to kneel at that moment. Mm -hmm. um, but Jimmy uh, knelt, and he flew, and he ascended, and he transformed our national anthem, which was a martial drinking song, Mm -hmm. uh, in its first instance, which had some racist oh, yeah. uh, commentary, mm -hmm. into something that spoke to not only his African heritage, mm -hmm. but his Native American heritage as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. Uh, and he took that then and came to New York City, mm -hmm. December 1969. Okay. Heavy time, the 1st of December, 1969, the draft lottery is right. begun. So people are going to Vietnam, you know, at the click of a button. How much of this are we seeing in your project? Oh, hopefully we're seeing and feeling all of it. Yeah. It was a heavy month. Right. Uh, the Panther headquarters, a five-hour shootout in Los Angeles, mm. uh, California, between the Panthers and the LAPD. Mm -hmm. The murder of Fred Hampton and Mark Clark in oh, Chicago. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, the Altamont concert, Notorious, uh, 
the Rolling Stones are playing outside of San Francisco and a black man is stabbed to death by the Hells Angels who had been hired to be security that day. Mm -hmm. Jimmy is released from Toronto where he had some very serious drug charges. Oh yeah. So all of that happened in December of that month and it leads up to this very frigid moment because New York, just like New York last week, was mm -hmm. under the impact of this Northeaster that was coming in. People were really, really frozen, but Billy and Buddy and Jimmy, they brought the heat. And they came through for us. Absolutely. I love this idea. So uh, here's the thing. Yes. People are going to hear you talk about this and they're not going to want to miss it. <laughs> so how do they make sure they get to see this show? They need to come over to Fulton. Yes. Yeah, right in downtown Brooklyn. We're here at Brick Arts, this mm -hmm. wonderful place uh, for new work. Mm -hmm. Thursday, 7.30, Friday, uh, we have two shows, mm -hmm. 7 to 9.30. Saturday, we have two shows as well, 7 to 9.30. And Sunday, All we right. finish it off, 4.30 and 7.30. So there's seven opportunities to catch us right here at Brick Arts. So they now. know this now, and I can't wait for them to be here, and I can't wait for people to see your show. And thank you so much for being here and for sharing this with us, because it's important and it's a part, big part of history and music history that I think people don't hear a lot or enough about. I don't want people to lose Jimi Hendrix, so I want them to come here and see this. <laughs> I can't do that, but I'm here for it. Well, Jimmy could do it better. He could do it better. Thanks for joining us today. And please come back tomorrow for Remembrance of Martin Luther King and a look at his legacy in advance of MLK Day next Monday. In the meantime, if you'd like to send us any suggestions, comments, criticism, or really good knock-knock jokes, please do so at 112BKComments at BrickArtsMedia.org. We'll see you soon.